And what really plays on my mind now is that poor soul with whatever happened to her that night at the railway station, I wasn't there for it then. So that, as a mother, has been a big thing. I don't go on about it, but now that I'm older, I think I'm spilling over. On Wednesday, the 11th of July, 1990, 23-year-old Sarah McDermott played a game of tennis with colleagues after work. She caught the train home and vanished after getting off at Cannonook Railway Station at 10.20pm. Her worried family checked the station as the last train came through at quarter past one in the morning, and Sarah wasn't on it. Even though it was out of character, the only explanation the McDermott's could think of was that Sarah must have stayed overnight with a friend and felt it was too late to call home. They reported her missing as soon as they knew she didn't turn up for work the next morning. By early Thursday afternoon, the police had found blood near her car in the Cannonook Railway Station car park and sealed off the area. One by one, people who had been in the area that night came forward. Many noticed her on the train, the girl in the tracksuit carrying a tennis racket. Quite a few saw her get off the train at Cannonook. Some reported hearing screaming. And then Sarah vanished. There were also quite a few people who were seen by others who never came forward. A man in a red jumper pacing up and down on the train platform. The man who rode his bike and stopped at the top of the overpass. The man with a briefcase going down the stairs towards the car park around the same time as Sarah. And perhaps most importantly, the man with the worried look on his face seen by Nancy and her parents coming from the direction of the car park. This is where we hope our listeners might be able to help. Vicky Petratus examines the investigation in the immediate aftermath. This episode is brought to you by the Inspire Collection by Kalia. Just because you're working out doesn't mean you shouldn't look fabulous. The Inspire Collection by Kalia was designed with both style and performance in mind. It looks good, feels good, and stays put no matter how you move. And the collection has everything you need for a day at the gym. A support bra, crop tanks, bike shorts, amazing leggings, and more. It's their most versatile collection yet. Shop the Inspire Collection by Kalia now, exclusively at Dick Sporting Goods. In the days after Sarah McDermott disappeared, a lot of people came forward and gave their information to the police. A picture emerged of a busy night at the Cannonook Railway Station with lots of people around. Detective Inspector Laurie Ratz described recreating the scene as information flooded in. You start to look at the witness statements, you start to work out how many people were there when all this happened, like you've got two people across the road, albeit a man and his daughter and the dogs, you've got the witness walking up from Frankston, you've got 
people going to the... Um, the bingo uh, ladies. Yeah, the bingo ladies. You've got a guy on a bike who who at one stage is on the top of the overpass, on top of the overpass of the railway station and he's down and you've got a guy at the end of the station platform pacing backwards and forwards. You've got all these things happening. You're trying to piece all of those together while looking after everything else. While detectives could locate most of the people mentioned by witnesses, there remained three men who were never located. While they were seen by a number of people, these men never came forward to say they were at or near the Cannanook Railway Station that night. Detective Colin Clark remembers the recurring descriptions that several people gave the police. There was another man in a red jumper on the Cannanook Railway Station at the time. Everyone saw him. I think he seemed yeah. to be pacing and and so you never found him? No, and uh, certainly didn't come forward. There was a lot of other people, the kids were there. We found them and they came forward. The kids that Cole Clark is talking about were three teenagers who were on the train that night. They all told essentially the same story. They hopped onto the train at Cannanook that Sarah had travelled on. They didn't notice her getting off, but they did notice a guy carrying a briefcase. They had taken the train to the end of the line at Frankston, but decided it was too cold to go wandering. They stayed on the train for the return journey. They were spotted by several station workers. One of them knew one of the boys, whose family ran a milk bar near the Cannanook railway station. Several witnesses saw the man in overalls ride his bike from the direction of Frankston, ride up the ramp at the station, then wait at the top of the overpass for the train. Everyone seemed to mention him, but he was never found. Homicide detective Charlie Bazina said that besides guilt, there's a couple of other reasons why people don't come forward. They're not trying to hide anything. They just don't think they have anything to add. And it's not a matter of, you know, we never find them. It's because people then say, well, oh, they probably know about that anyway, or, you know, I don't think I, I can offer anything. I'm not going to go forward and do it quite innocently. And that's what we've, the message we always try and get across to the community that, We've got all the jigsaw pieces. You know, you just might fit in there. We just need to eliminate you from our inquiry. And you might have seen something that's not important to you, so we can at least have an opportunity to ask you specific questions and say, well, you were there, they often go there, what happens normally, et cetera, et cetera. But despite appeals to the public, a number of people never came forward. Could they have something to add? Detective Cole Clark explains. Yeah, there was three people who were unaccounted for. We put out as much uh, request for information for everybody that was there. Well, nearly all of the people obviously were accounted for. They came forward, they gave information. They said, yeah, that was me, I was on the train. I saw this and I saw that. And, I, and there was a number of people getting off the train that heard screams, a female scream in the area. I think there was two two loud screams that were heard to come from the car park. One lady was on the top of the, the overpass. She looked down towards the uh, Marie. Maria, the woman at the top of the overpass, was the one who heard a female voice say firmly, give me back my keys and stop fooling around. Within a few seconds, she had heard a scream that lasted only a second. To give you an idea of distance, 
Maria was about 150 metres away from where Sarah's car was parked, which for comparison is around the width of the MCG or I imagine any sports stadium. In a conversation I had with Sarah's mother, Sheila, we both wondered if you could hear a firm voice from that far away. And Sheila told me she'd always wondered about the people who reported screaming. She said that Sarah was like her and they were both more likely to be struck speechless when confronted with something frightening. She found it hard to picture her daughter screaming at all. In the last episode, we looked at all the people who reported screaming on the night Sarah was taken. I'm not saying they didn't hear screaming, but the question has to be considered, was it Sarah? Remember what Detective Cole Clark said. I know I've been on and off that railway station at night times when we were investigating this and you'd hear people yelling and screaming and particularly young kids and girls, they did that. So it was hard to tell whether that screaming was exactly... Sarah or at that time or whether it was someone else nearby but you certainly can't discount it. Another witness who came forward was a taxi driver called Ken who was driving slowly past the station just after the train had gone through to see if there was anyone waiting for a taxi. Since Sarah's train arrived at the Cannonock railway station at 10.20 his story is interesting because he might have seen her in the car park. Here's what he told police. These are his words, not his voice. Between 10pm and 10.30pm, I was driving along Wells Road and got to the intersection with Bardier Avenue. The lights on the car are very bright and they lit up the car park area in the Cannock Railway Station. My attention was drawn to a female walking in the car park towards Seaford Way. This female was wearing a green tracksuit outfit carrying a bag with a tennis racket in it. The handle was pointing out of the bag. I didn't take any more notice of her other than that. I saw a male person coming down the steps of the walkway to the railway station. He had on a dark three-quarter length overcoat and carrying a briefcase. I didn't take any further notice of him. I also remember seeing a dark figure standing, looked as though he was leaning up against the fence more than anything. This person was about 20 to 30 feet in front of the female in the green tracksuit. I only caught a glimpse of this person out of the corner of my eye. Remember in the last episode, Chad earlier told police he noticed a woman in her mid-twenties with dark hair and a long overcoat going the same way Sarah did toward the car park. Could the person in the overcoat that Ken saw have been a woman? At any rate, the man or woman with the briefcase never came forward and the man leaning against the fence near Sarah was never identified. So while the detectives tried to recreate the night Sarah was taken, the search for her was in full swing. Brian McManus from the SES will never forget meeting Sarah's parents, Peter and Sheila, when they visited the crime scene a couple of days after Sarah went missing. A few days later, the police had brought them up to the crime scene and I met them there and they were very thankful that the SES were out trying to find their daughter. 
we can only imagine how hard it would have been for Peter and Sheila McDermott to be in the place that their daughter had been taken from. It's the kind of thing you know in your own mind if the worst has happened and we wondered if it had because it was so unlike Sarah. Yeah. She'd have got off the station. So we knew something had happened between the station and that car park. Even though Sarah was taken away from the car park, the evidence left behind left little doubt about what happened to her. Inspector Laurie Ratz saw that right from his first visit to the car park on the day Sarah was reported missing. She was dragged with her head towards what would have been towards the the shrubbery and her feet closer to the curb, which would indicate to me anyway, that somebody's got her by the shoulders or the upper body to drag her across. I remember years ago talking to Cole Clark and Laurie Routes about this. How long was Sarah left there? Because the answer to this question might suggest how long the offender needed to perhaps walk home, retrieve a vehicle, and then come back to the station car park. In the time, there is a clue and the time is measured in the amount of blood soaked into the ground. Laurie explains. Once we got the crime scene examiners there, it it had soaked into the ground considerably. There was a flywire screen, either that her head had been on or the, but but held an, an amount of blood. And it had soaked in, which would indicate again that depending on how quickly she was bleeding, whether she was bleeding out from a neck injury or a head injury, it would indicate that she was there for a fair amount of time. Now, I don't think we ever worked that out, but the blood had seeped into the ground considerably, I would say, like inches. So that would take a while. So the short answer to the question of time is that no one knows exactly, but it was long enough for Sarah to have bled inches of blood into the soil. Even though the soil around there is reasonably sandy and has good drainage, I would imagine, uh, being so close to the beach, I would have thought that she would have been there for at least 10 or 15 minutes, maybe more. And it's the maybe more we need to think about. Days after the disappearance of Sarah McDermott, A local resident called Stephen Chalmers rang the police hotline. He explained how he had driven into the Cannonook Railway Station car park two hours after Sarah's train and had seen a yellow Cortina with a black vinyl roof come screaming out of the car park. Even though he'd been there two hours after Sarah went missing, Stephen wanted to come forward mostly to explain his presence at the car park, if nothing else. He left his information, and when the police didn't get back to him, Stephen figured his story wasn't relevant. But like others I've spoken to, it's always weighed on his mind. So it was a Wednesday, 11th of July, 1990 in Melbourne, and I'd just been to see Soul to Soul, the um, British R&B band in the city. And at the same time, my then-girlfriend used to drive her car to the Cannonock station, so she had some mechanical issues, was breaking down frequently, and it had broken down previously at the station. So 
On the way home, coming back through Frankston, I thought I'd better be the dutiful boyfriend and call past and see if her car was still there, which I did. And as I came down Clower Street, it was about quarter past 12 of the Thursday morning and it was cold and foggy. And just as I was slowing down to turn into the station car park, a yellow Ford Cortina came out of the car park at what I'd say would be considerable speed, no giving way, no stopping, and flew across the intersection to head down uh, Bardia Avenue, which is directly opposite the station and into an industrial area in Frankston. So it sort of shocked me and I had to brake suddenly because, you know, but it just, but I remember the car was a sort of custard yellow for want of a better description. It was dented and a bit dinged up, had a black vinyl roof that was torn because I remember seeing white patches sort of on the roof. So anyway, that, that shocked me a bit. I turned into the car park, and as I turned in, I could see a lone car at the very back sort of left-hand corner of the car park. So I, put, I started to drive towards it. I put my lights on high beam, and as soon as I did that, I could see that the car was actually a hatchback and not a sedan, and my girlfriend had a little red Gemini sedan. So I was kind of relieved it wasn't her car, and I, rather than stop, I just turned around and made my way out of the car park and made my way home. So it was probably two days or you know in the next day and the next two days after that that the news broke that Sarah had uh, gone missing from the car park on that night and the first thing I thought was my goodness like I was in that car park my car was in there and I was driving out of it somebody saw me coming out of that car park I I could be in for a bit of pain so I actually rang the police there was a a call for assistance I, I, I called them gave them all my details name address etc vehicle registration model explained what had happened explained about the yellow ford cortina and i was told that that someone would be in touch and that was it i never heard another word so for me i kind of just thought well okay clearly it was not relevant information at the time and i moved on but it, it stuck in my mind for so many years and pretty much every time you know i'm a, a local resident of peninsula i drive around that part of the road often so Every time I come down that hill, I think of the night that that yellow Cortina flew across the road in front of me and down to Bardia Avenue, and it's plagued on my mind ever since. I bought a new car recently, and when people asked me what kind of car I got, I said, a blue one. And when the salesperson began to tell me about the engine, I held up my hand to stop her and said, I don't care. So there are people like me And at the opposite end of the scale, there are people like Stephen, who knows cars really well. He worked at a place that sold car parts, and he knew the make and the model of the Ford Cortina he saw. It was a 1978 to 1980 model. It was part of his job, and he saw them most days of the week when people came in looking for parts. Stephen also had experience with racing and running driver training programs which makes his estimate in the car's acceleration more interesting. It was going so quick. It had obviously accelerated from the back end of the car park. His car park was probably 150 or 200 metres long, so it had a bit of a chance. But no, it went past me so fast. The thing that sort of stuck in my head was if I wasn't turning into there and I was just driving past, we'd have had a massive accident that night. It was very close, but... Just the car coming out of nowhere because that car park's actually skewered by a hill and sort of bushes, shrubs, so you can't see into it until you're literally right beside it and you turn left and do a U-turn into it. 
the car park's not that long, and the speed that this car came out of the car park for a little Ford Cortina, it had to have had what I'd consider a run-up, essentially. So it's had to have a good 100 metres or so to get up to the speed it was doing when it came through the intersection. So it's had to come from the back of the car park, no question, to reach the speed it was doing when it crossed the road. When Stephen Chalmers gave his information to the police hotline, it would have been noted on an information report. He always thought the police didn't contact him because he was there two hours after Sarah. But in light of the fact that Sarah was left in the bushes for a time and no one knows how long, perhaps the yellow Cortina might be important. When I asked Detective Laurie Rance about this, he played devil's advocate. If the person in the car did have something to do with removing Sarah from the car park, why would they draw attention to themselves in such a way as speeding out and nearly causing a collision? I suppose two things in relation to that. If if they left her there for two hours without any urgency, why would the urgency be when they were leaving the, the car park, whether in the... This is if you've got the theory that they picked her up and put her in the, the back or the boot or wherever of the Cortina, it would be easier just to drive out quietly. Like, if he had a... If that car had driven out of the car park quietly, that guy probably wouldn't have never come forward. Nothing would have struck him as different or unusual or suspicious. So I don't know. Look, people, yeah, people you know, do things, and I mean, it could have been there could have been a, a perfectly reasonable answer for why that was happening, and have nothing to do with the with the murder investigation at all. And what Laurie says makes sense, but if Sarah was left in the bushes for a while, could it be that she was attacked by someone on foot who then went off to get a vehicle and came back for her after the station was quiet? It would account for the amount of blood found in the bushes area where she had been dragged. It suggests an offender who ignores Sarah's car as a mode of transport available right then and there but instead attacks her as she reaches her car, drags her to the bush area, leaves her there, then returns later with a vehicle to transport her away. It makes me wonder about the identical photo that 12-year-old Nancy and her mother did for the police. They had seen a man coming from the area of the car park, looking worried and trying to avoid their gaze, not long after Nancy and her dad heard screams in the car park. Homicide investigators decided not to release the identical to us. But it would have been interesting to compare it to the glimpse that local woman Carolyn McAllister, who we heard about in episode one, had of the man who followed her after she'd caught the train to Cananook a month earlier. I asked Carolyn if she herself made the connection. It did make me think about that because I used to get off at Cannonock Station. The fact that she'd gone missing from that car park there, from that station, certainly it did make me think, well, I'm not going back to that station again. But I never connected that, of course. I think it was later in the evening maybe and I guess I just put it out of my mind to a certain degree as well but I didn't like to think that he was so close or it was so close. It could have been me. But Carolyn's lucky escape felt like a coincidence 
she didn't go to the police. She really had little to tell them. A guy followed her one night and she got away. She didn't get a good look at him, tall, young, and that was about it. I'm sure I couldn't have been the only person that was followed. There must have been other people who walked home from the station in the evenings. And Carolyn is absolutely right. Just days before the attack, a prowler had been reported at the Cannonook Railway Station. So the lone man, looking worried, walking toward young Nancy and her family from the direction of the car park might be an important clue. I put this theory to Laurie Ratz, an attacker on foot who then left Sarah at the scene and went to fetch a car. Given that several people were seen, a man is seen walking past them looking worried, worried enough for people to notice that he looks worried and hurrying past, if she was attacked and then someone has gone from the station to find a car, to get a car, that might account for the blood, for the amount of time that she might have been in that area. Yeah. So we assume that it it's not someone who necessarily had a car parked in the yep. Cannonock station that, at the that's, time. That, that's, yeah, you could assume that, I think. I don't know why whoever did this didn't put her in her own car and drive her away. And, like, as you said, in one, one respect, they've been so careful to pick up everything that she had with her, but the other side of it, but they've left her car there. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a puzzle. It's a question we will revisit soon when a suspect emerges from the crowd ahead of the rest. Was this suspect the type of offender who would ignore a car right then and there, only to leave Sarah at the scene and seek out another car to move her? What was Laurie Rance's original theory? You've got to try not to not to try and have a theory um, as much as you can and try and just let the facts speak for themselves. But you would imagine that, that she's been there for a while, a car was still there, whoever's done this has left her there for a while and then, and then moved her somewhere. Now, whether that was to get a car to move her or get other people to help moving it, I mean, a, a lifeless or even unconscious body is pretty hard to move, but it can be done. It can be done. So you try to look at all possible scenarios. I put a question to Laurie that had been bugging me for a while. If Maria, the witness from the overpass, did indeed hear Sarah say, stop fooling around, give me back my keys, and Sarah was talking to the offender, then that would mean the offender had Sarah's keys and access to her car right then and there. If someone injured Sarah, then left her in the bushes for some time, then went to get a car to transport her somewhere else, why didn't they just take her car? I don't know. That's always been a bit of a a concern of mine too, because if the car had have gone and we got the report of the missing person and we went down there and the car wasn't there, so when the car was there, that was when there was... Her friends got off the train in Bond Beach, Bond Beach, Seaford, Cannonook, two stations later, she gets off and her car is still there. So... That's the first thing that starts to concern you. If the car had gone and we didn't know where her car was parked, so you'd be searching all over, you you could almost miss 
those great marks because they were right opposite where the car was or or walking from the driver's door in a straight line past the car, you walked straight into it or virtually. So I've often thought if they had have picked her up or the, the offender or offenders picked her up, put her in her own car and drove her away somewhere, we would have been behind the eight ball right from the beginning because we might have just looked at it and said, look, she's got there, she's headed off, she's, she's got a boyfriend, she might have a boyfriend somewhere or she's gone to visit somewhere. And So that might push back the, the crime scene. You might not, without being too critical, but you might not search the crime scene as thoroughly as we did when we found the car there. So a whole range of things. I, I, I don't know why whoever did this didn't put her in her own car and drive her away. But very soon after Sarah was taken, there emerged a theory that didn't fit with what any of the witnesses saw on the night Sarah vanished. In the days immediately after Sarah disappeared, between the station and her car, there were whispers about a young woman called Jodie Jones being involved. Why were there whispers? Well, mostly because Jodie Jones started telling people that she had been responsible for the girl at Cannanook. Detective Cole Clark describes how this came about. A friend of hers, Queenie, was her nickname. She'd been a friend of this Jodie Jones and Jodie had been living with Heather for about a week time, a week, over a week period, on and off. It's in Carter Avenue, which was not far away from the railway station at all. And on, I think it was the following day on the 12th, and had told her that she was involved with it. She had to get out of town. She was involved with it with two other people. Jodie had been back and forward from Queenie's place a couple of days prior to that. Queenie had owed her some money. I think it was only $100 or something. And But Jodie was a drug addict and she was desperate for money. So she'd been to the unit a couple of times looking for money. And the next day she came back looking for, for the cash. Jodie had tra- travelled on the train to Cannanook to get there. At the time, we'd had a lot of uniform members uh, handing out flyers in relation to Sarah's missing. And uh, Jodie had mentioned to Queenie that she'd seen the coppers at, at the railway station and said to her, well, I was involved with what was there and I need the money to to get out of town. That was her idea of getting the cash out. You know? And from the moment Jodie Jones came onto the police radar, she became the prime suspect. There was a lot of work done on Jodie and a lot of people spoken to her. Uh, all the friends that were with her at the time beforehand and afterwards. She did make confessions later on in jail to other people. I remember some of the confessions were a little bit all over the place. Before we get into what Jodie Jones may or may not have done on the night of Wednesday the 11th of July 1990, we need to take a look at her history so that when she emerges as the prime suspect, and for some detectives remain so to this day, it's important to know who she was and what she was capable of. In 1984, six years before Sarah went missing, 19-year-old Jodie Jones faced court charged with a manslaughter she'd committed a year earlier, 
when she had just turned 18. Her lawyer would later tell the court that Jodie was abandoned by her parents when she was two and became a ward of the state. She was raped by six men when she was 11. When she was 15, her foster father died of cancer and Jodie soon moved to the streets of St Kilda where, according to her lawyer, she lived like a feral child. Jodie became a sex worker and was hospitalised six times in 18 months for suicide attempts and drug overdoses. When she turned 18, her time as a state ward came to an end. A comment on her final report said, We will keep doing what we can for Jodie, but she will soon be dead. When the trial judge, Justice Beach, read a report on her, he looked up and said to the court, It is one of the most disturbing documents I've read. And Jesuit youth worker, brother Alex MacDonald, described her saying, Jodie is one of the most broken women I have known. But broken women can break others, and that is what Jodie Jones did. Jodie got her freedom from state care the day she turned 18 on the 9th of February. 13 days later, she killed a man. It all happened around 8.30 on the night of Tuesday the 22nd of February, 1983, in the shadows of St Kilda's Lunar Park. In Shakespeare Grove, behind Lunar Park, there was a car park near a toilet block. It was seedier back then. It was a meeting place, a hangout, and sometimes a beat, a place young sex workers could earn enough money to feed a drug habit. And for 46-year-old James Helcott, it was the place he died. A young man called Paul was sitting in a car in the car park with a couple of mates when he witnessed the attack on James Helcott. Here's how he described the attack in his police statement. These are his words, not his voice. And since Paul is relating a murderous attack, it also comes with a language warning. About five minutes after we arrived, a guy walked past us on the roadway of the car park. When he was about 30 feet away from us, a girl called Jodie Jones went up to him and started clipping him across the ears. She was saying things like, you fucking old drunk. He pushed her away from him and kept walking. A group of four or five guys came, half running, half jogging to him. One of them grabbed him by the shirt and said, what are you doing to our chick? This person pulled him down and started punching him in the stomach with uppercuts. There were also other of these guys punching at him at the same time. The man that was being hit was yelling, oh fuck off, leave me alone. The guy was on the ground and every one of the people there was punching or kicking him. I then ran over to the group and threw a couple of punches at the young guy wearing a red t-shirt. I hit him in the head. He then turned around and kicked me in the groin and told me to fuck off, this isn't your blue. I then ran back to the car and got back in the car. I said something like, let's go get the coppers. We then drove off to Fitzroy Street looking for a police car. When I got back in the car, I turned around and saw the girl stomping on the bloke who was lying on the ground, somewhere between his neck and his stomach. 
I couldn't say exactly where on his body, but in that area. I saw her stomp him about three times, and they were hard stomps. She really brought her knee up and brought it down hard. When Paul and his friend Mick couldn't find a police car, they drove back to the Shakespeare Grove car park, but they were too late. James Helcott was dead. Paul's friend Mick heard James Helcott yell something at Jodie before she accosted him. Mick would say in his statement, I heard a fellow yelling at a girl. After he'd finished yelling, I heard the reply and then saw Jodie chasing the male person. He's now the person who was killed. She started arguing with him under the tree near the entrance of the car park. At this time, she punched him and then he turned and hit her back. At this point, the group of guys leaning on the car ran over to assist her. They all started swinging punches at him and he started fighting, trying to defend himself. There were about four or five guys in this group. They continued to punch him with clenched fists and grasped hands and he was badly struck in the chest and back. During these blows, he fell to the ground and that is when they all, including the girl, started to kick him in the back, chest, everywhere, the face, head, anywhere they could get the boots in. One of the teenagers charged alongside Jodie, 17-year-old Wayne Hogan, later told police how they'd all been at the pub for a few drinks and then headed to the area known as The Beat in Shakespeare Grove. While Wayne was talking to a friend, he heard Jodie having a go at a bloke. He said Jodie was really getting into him. He then joined her and threw a couple of punches and then, according to him, he stood back and watched the others continue the attack on James Helcott. Question, what were you watching? Answer, the others punching and kicking? Jodie was doing heaps. Question, where did you go then? Answer, to the toilet with Brett? Donnie was there and Jodie, and I helped her clean her legs. As James Helcott lay dying, somebody remembered Jodie Jones saying, grab his wallet. She then went through his pockets looking for cash. Here's what her co-accused, Russell Smith, said in his interview. Question. Was the man still alive when Jodie was going through his pockets? Answer. I think so. He was still moaning. Question. What happened after that? Answer. I was walking through the car park with Jodie and she told me she got $5 from him. Wayne Hogan was charged with murder, along with Donnie Collins, who was also 17, and Russell Smith, who was 18. Jodie Jones, who picked the fight, started the fight, and was described by witnesses to be brutal in her stomping of the victim before washing his blood off her legs, was charged with murder as well. They all pleaded not guilty. Around 1998, when I was working on a book on child sex abuse, I had interviewed several members from the Victoria Police Delta Task Force. It had been set up to investigate the extent of pedophile activity around St Kilda. When I was reading the homicide files on the murder of James Helcott, the Delta Task Force was mentioned a number of times. 
I wondered if the detectives I interviewed all those years ago knew Jodie Jones. I tracked down Detective Larry Proud. Not only did he remember Jodie, but as soon as reports came in that night that a bunch of street kids had beaten a man to death, he and other detectives from Delta were called out on the night James Helcott was murdered. I was home in bed. I got a phone call from brother Alex McDonald. He told me what had happened. That Jodie and uh, a couple of others had jumped on James Halkett's head in Shakespeare Grove. So I hopped in the car and raced down there. It hadn't taken long for news of the killing to filter into the cafes and gathering places around St Kilda. People wandered over to have a look, and by the time Jodie Jones arrived at a cafe in Fitzroy Street, the people she met there already knew about the dead man in Shakespeare Grove. They had heard about the killing at 11pm when a girl arrived to tell them. A couple of them, including youth worker brother Alex MacDonald, who happened to be there at the time, had driven down to Shakespeare Grove, then returned to the cafe. When Jodie arrived, she spoke quietly to brother Alex MacDonald and he asked the group to take her home. One of the women who was in the car with Jodie later told police, I heard Jodie say, I didn't mean it. Jodie was crying a lot and seemed very upset. Another witness, however, in the same car would describe Jodie as smiling and laughing. But upset or not, Jodie Jones was wanted in relation to the death of James Helcott and the police intercepted the car within minutes of it leaving St Kilda. All the occupants were taken back to the Paran police station. We went down there and I think Jodie had been locked up in Paran at that stage for something else. I got Jodie and I took her back to St Kilda police station from memory. She was in the cells. But when I got down there, Sister Mary, I think it was, from Good Shepherd College, a convent, taken a change of clothes in there for her and uh, unfortunately taking the clothes away that she committed the murder in. Larry remembers Jodie to have been drug-affected on the night she killed James Halkett. She was on drugs. She was high as a kite and so were the kids around her. From memory, we only asked her questions then. We didn't actually interview her. We collected evidence and we stayed up all night. This must have been about two or three in the morning when it started. And we worked on it all night, all day. And uh, I think it was sometime in the afternoon from memory that we actually interviewed Jodie. So what did Larry think when he heard what Jodie did to James Helcott? The flabbergasted. I couldn't believe it. You know, I knew she was wild and out of control, but I didn't think she'd ever do that. Not intentionally anyway. I liked Jodie. She was, a, you know, underneath she was a good kid. She was just out of control, very angry. Couldn't help her get into trouble. She went crazy. Personally, Vicky, I, I, I think she was just so out of it with the drugs that she realised what she'd done later on. But at the time, I think she just went off the planet. When Jodie was interviewed, she spoke about what her three co-accused had done. But despite all witnesses painting her as aggressive as them, she downplayed her involvement. Question. 
What did Donnie do after the guy fell to the ground? Answer, he started kicking him in the head. Question, how many times would he have kicked this man? Answer, altogether, 50 or 60 times? Question, how hard were these kicks? Answer, pretty hard. Question, how many times did Wayne kick him? Answer, roughly about 30 or 40, I'm not sure. Question, did anybody else kick him? Answer, I kicked him once. An interesting aside, when detectives asked Jodie what she'd been wearing on her feet during the attack, she said nothing. Even though I heard a number of police refer to this as a stiletto attack, it seems that Jodie was in fact barefoot. My impression was she was pretty ashamed of what she'd done. She wasn't heartless. She wasn't a bad kid. I think she'd realised what she'd done and the consequences were going to be very heavy. So I think she started to minimise it then, but she wasn't boastful about it. She was upset about it. But being upset about it couldn't bring James Helcott back from the dead, nor could it mitigate what the four teenagers had done to him. At the post-mortem examination, the forensic pathologist found extensive injuries. Most of James Helcott's ribs were fractured, his heart had been lacerated, and perhaps the worst injury was that his left eye had been driven back into his cranial cavity. The four teenagers who bashed James Helcott to death eventually pleaded guilty to the lesser charge of manslaughter and were each sentenced to 12 years in prison with a 10-year minimum. It was reported that Jodie Jones screamed abuse at the judge as she was led away struggling and crying. If sentencing began from the first day of being in custody and included time served, Jodie Jones should have been in prison until 1993, but her minimum sentence of 10 years saw her only serving seven before she was allowed early release. She was out in February 1990. When Jodie Jones was in Fairley Women's Prison, she spent time with a woman called Heather, whose nickname was Queenie. Queenie was released in January 1990 and contacted an organisation that helped newly released prisoners with accommodation. When Jodie was released the following month, she left her number there and asked for it to be passed on to Queenie. It wasn't long before Jodie was living with Queenie and her 11-year-old daughter Prue. As an adult, Prue has some lasting impressions of spending time with Jodie Jones. I never remember seeing her with really any other friends. When she'd come over, whoever brought her would sit in the car instead of coming in with her. So I never remember her talking about family. I think she was a bit of a loner. She'd latch onto whoever was there or wherever the drugs were. But you could see there was a side of her that you wouldn't mess with. And I think to a certain degree, she intimidated even my mum a little bit too. Prue remembers one time on a train when Jodie did something that Prue 
could hardly believe. One time I remember that we were on the train. I don't know where we were going, but the carriage was full of people. And she just squatted down in front of everyone and just peed. She just pulled her knickers down and just dropped a squat in front of everyone. I was mortified. I couldn't even believe what was going on in front of my eyes. And I remember mum just saying to me, comforting me and saying, try not to worry about her. Yeah, I'll never forget that. It was like, wow, okay. Prue remembered that Jodie had been drinking, but still, that kind of behaviour was very much a statement that Jodie would do what she pleased and damn the consequences. Things ran smoothly for a while, but when Jodie swore at Prue, that was the last straw and Jodie was asked to leave. Queenie didn't see Jodie for a while, and then one cold night on Sunday the 1st of July, Queenie heard a knock at the door and it was Jodie. She stayed for a week and, in Queenie's words, ate me out of house and home and it got to the stage where I couldn't afford to keep her. On the following Friday, the 6th of July, Jodie banked her unemployment cheque into Queenie's bank account, left $100 in there, drew out $420, of which she gave $100 to Queenie for having her. Queenie and her young daughter went to stay with her other daughter in the country and returned home on Thursday the 12th of July, the day Sarah was reported missing. Queenie took the train for her trip to the country and arrived back at Cannonook Railway Station mid-morning before the police had arrived. On the morning of Friday the 13th of July, Queenie was home when Jodie again appeared on her doorstep. Prue was just 11 years old when Jodie Jones came to stay with her and her mum Queenie in the place they rented in Carter Avenue, which was about a kilometre from Cannonock Station. Because she was a child, and because it's over 30 years since the 11th of July 1990, Prue's memory has faded about some of what happened. She can't remember making two statements for the police, but she will never forget the night Jodie Jones arrived on their doorstep on Friday the 13th of July, two days after Sarah went missing. It was raining that night. I'll never forget when I answered the door, she was saturated and she looked mortified. And she went into the bedroom with mum and when I got a bit older, mum told me that she had mentioned something about some other guys being at Cannonook Station and something to do with a girl walking to her car and there was big trouble. She was scared she'd done something she was panicking about. Prue explained how her mum always regretted not getting more information from Jodie that night. Later on, she was really disappointed that she didn't let her talk more because it was evident that she wanted to tell her something, but mum was fearful of knowing things that could get her into trouble, so she insisted that she didn't say, that Jodie didn't say anything more about it. Queenie had just been released from jail herself and been reunited with her young daughter. 
it's no surprise she wanted to put as much distance between herself and the abduction of Sarah McDermott. But Queenie must have also seen what young Prue did when Jodie arrived at their house. I'll never forget what she looked like when I opened the door. She was so pale and white and it was obvious that something was wrong. Uh, She always kind of seemed like the standover type, so to see her in that manner was different and a bit shocking and memorable. And while Prue has no memory of making two statements to police, here's what she said at the time. I overheard a conversation between her and Mum. Paul did too. We were in the lounge, but we could hear them from the bedroom. I could hear Jodie say that she was in deep shit because she was in the Cannonook murder and that there were two other guys with her and she didn't know whether they would lag on her. I know what lagging on someone means. I heard Mum tell her that she didn't want any trouble when Jodie asked for the $100 Mum owed her because she wanted to go interstate and Mum said she didn't have the money. Their voices were a bit raised. Then I went into Mum's bedroom and Jodie sort of stopped talking a bit. Then Paul came in too and asked her to leave. She sat there for about two minutes on Mum's bed and then she took her bag and stormed out. I waited for about five minutes and then went out onto the street to see where Jodie went and I saw her right at the opposite end of the street and she was on foot. And what are Prue's lasting impressions of Jodie that night? Like, she had fear in her face. I don't know if you'd call it regret or maybe to a certain degree she was like, shit, what have I done? Like I said, I've never seen her in that state. I remember as soon as I opened the door thinking, God, what's wrong with you? What's happened? I knew something had Even being at that age, I knew something pretty horrendous had happened just by taking one look at her. This is what Prue's mum, Queenie, would later tell the police. She came in. She was as white as a ghost and she started pacing the floor. She said, have you got my $100 as I need it? I said, I've left my handbag up at my daughter's with the bank book in it. She said, I've got to see you in the bedroom, Queenie, straight away. Jodie and I then went into my bedroom. Jodie was holding her head and saying nothing. I said, what's wrong? She said, you know that murder that was up at the Cannonook station? I was there with two other blokes and I'm worried because I don't know how staunch they are. I got a shock and said, oh my God, what on earth did you come here for? Why here? There was a problem right from the start with Jodie's story. In her world, Everyone knew each other. Yet here was Jodie telling people that she was with two guys at the Cannonook Railway Station car park and no one knew who they were. Another problem, of course, is that when she tells Queenie that she's worried they won't stay staunch or quiet, and yet here she is telling Queenie, so by definition, not staying staunch herself. Detective Laurie Ratz worried about these aspects too. Yeah, and the other thing is that, that concerns me a bit 
is that she's got a particular group of friends, let's call them friends, but everybody knows everybody, but suddenly she's with two guys that no one knows. I would have thought that any of those people that she spoke to, and you're right, Vicky, she's not only told uh, Queenie, she's telling everybody, I was there, the story's a little bit different, but I was there and and I'm worried about it and uh, all that sort of stuff. Wouldn't somebody say to her, who are you with? Oh, I was with two guys you've never met before. Where did these two guys come from? And, and when she was driven down to Frankston or when she's been driven around Frankston by people in car, it's always people that other people know. So wouldn't you say, I was with, I was with Jack and I was with Joe? Or I don't want to tell you who I was with. It's just, I was with these two blokes. It just, it just doesn't, it doesn't work for me. Jodie's story was that she was with two guys and they wanted to mug someone and the mugging turned to murder. She's in the railway station car park, ready to roll or mug somebody with two guys that no one knows. So there's two people that are completely unknown to the whole thing. And we interviewed everybody that was like associated with Jodie, but no one was able to shed any light on it. I just find that a little bit difficult to believe. And as soon as Jodie Jones began telling people that she was involved in Sarah's disappearance, the police set their sights on her. And some never let her go. Coming up in the next episode of Searching for Sarah McDermott. Some people are cool, cold-hearted, collected. They, they look at these things very clinically. But I would say that with Sarah's disappearance, there's an element of patience, of being collected. There was other people that had committed offences at the railway station. There was a rape that had happened a couple of years prior, happened at the Canberra railway station. 